Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Erin Forster, your co-host for our podcast on increasing diversity in IBD trials. In this six-part series, my co-host, Dr. Ayana Lewis, and I will speak with a variety of stakeholders about diversity in the clinical trials workforce and in clinical study participation. On today's episode, we're going to explore how we can bring awareness of and education on clinical research to the community. Our guest is Kenneth Getz, Professor of Public Health and Community Medicine and Director of the Center for the Study of Drug Development at Tufts University School of Medicine. Ken is also the founder and chairman of the board for directors at CISGRIP, a nonprofit dedicated to providing education and information about clinical research. Ken, thank you for joining us today. You've made incredible contributions to clinical research throughout your career, but not as a physician. Can you share a bit more about your story and how you became interested in clinical trials? Sure. And let me just say, it's such a pleasure to be here. And I thank you for the chance to tell our story and uh, to talk more about this critical topic. I really stumbled into this industry. I had a science background, but instead of going to medical school, I ended up working in management consulting about over 30 years ago, and all of my work centered around drug development. Uh, That was an area where there was a lot of interest in applying management principles to accelerate the speed to move a drug through clinical testing and into the marketplace. And through my travels, I started learning that there was so little knowledge about the drug development process and how it works. And so I founded a publishing company called CenterWatch back in 1991. We launched CenterWatch really just to provide education for the professional world to understand the mystery of drug development. And we published a lot of data and statistics on how long it takes to develop a drug, how many drugs are in testing at any one time, who are the people doing uh, research and where is it conducted around the world? And CenterWatch grew remarkably. The company really took off. There was just such an appetite for that data. And even then, although it was a professional community, we had patients contacting me to learn about clinical trials in their specific area of interest and their specific disease. So I was amazed that people were finding us. Everything we were writing was really, uh, had a very technical aspect to it. We were focusing on economics and business information, but patients really showed just a tremendous amount of energy and interest in learning about this industry as well. After I sold CenterWatch, I moved out of the corporate world and I was asked to join the Tufts Center for the study of drug development at uh, Tufts University School of Medicine. So I entered the faculty there where I continue to do research in this area and I founded CISGRIP. I've just always been someone gathering information and acting as a kind of a conduit and an educator increasingly for patients and their families and for professionals who may not yet be involved in clinical research. That must've been such a pleasant surprise to have patients really step up to the plate, especially 
at that time, social media kind of hadn't really caught up at that time. So I guess that was what is a, is a more reputable Facebook group for your disease state, for example. And what was interesting, it's a really good point. What was interesting is that we were at the time charging $500 for a premium priced newsletter that had drug tracking through the development pipeline and all of this information. And patients were contacting us and letting us know, obviously, that that pricing would not work. But offering to do anything to gain access to that information. So we made it all freely available to patients and their families, and that just created even more momentum. People, they started spreading the word and more people started contacting us. So it was, it was really a nice way for me to learn the demand and interest in being educated and informed as a patient dealing with specific disease. Absolutely. And how have you seen patients as a group change in the time that you've been privy to these data? Academic centers, not academic centers, the demographics of those patients, level of education, for example? Yeah, it's very interesting. In a lot of respects, um, the demographics haven't necessarily changed that much. But uh, something that you had mentioned earlier, there are many more ways that people can access information. So the internet, as it is expanded, and there are so many outlets and ways that you can access uh, material, patients are able to do a lot more searching on their own, including even academic journals and uh, some that are published in remote countries that have a very, very limited uh, readership. So I would just say that with the advent of a lot of these communication and information sharing technologies people who are really hungry to learn more about their disease or to gain access to an investigational therapy, uh, they just have more tools that they can use. But to some extent, the demographics have remained fairly limited. Usually it's people who are a little bit more educated and comfortable doing a search on their own. And we see a lot of underserved or minority communities that often don't recognize that they can actively pursue and seek out a lot of this information themselves. Absolutely. It seems as though that's a great segue into talking about how Syscript actually operationalizes that increased access. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Syscript is an absolutely remarkable nonprofit. I am so proud of the group. We're approaching a 65 full-time members of our team that dedicate themselves to providing education and outreach to patients and their families. It really centers on advocacy on a wide variety of levels. So we have public educational programs. Some are live events that are conducted in major cities around the country. And we're getting into other areas of education, including a mobile unit that travels from city to city and really tries to bring education into the heart of the community at cultural events and health-related events. Syscript publishes a lot of uh, educational content, brochures, books, all of it made available for free to patients and their families. We also have services that we provide to help research sponsors do a better job of partnering with patients. So we run what are called patient input panels or advisory boards where a group of patients can look at a draft protocol and provide feedback on ways that the sponsor can make it easier for the patient to participate in the trial 
or perhaps even to target a more meaningful clinical outcome in the study versus uh, perhaps the primary endpoint or objective of the trial as stated in the draft protocol. We also translate a wide variety of very technical medical information into plain language. So we translate informed consent forms and protocol synopses and trial results and make sure that that is delivered back to patients as well. And with everything we do, we focus a lot of time and attention on making sure that we're developing materials that are appropriate for a wide variety of communities. So we really focus on the language that's used and making sure that it's understandable and it's positioned and presented in ways that are appropriate for the Black community, for example, or for the Latino community. Everything we do is customized to a large extent as well. That's fantastic. I had the privilege of working with the Haitian community in Miami when I was doing my residency. In that context, both on the island of Haiti and in Miami, we found that infographics were also particularly useful, especially when language extends beyond just Spanish, for example. How have you seen those trends change since the early 90s to now in terms of access and operationalizing, getting that information out? It has evolved so much. It relates a little bit to the declining attention span that we all have, right? Uh, We want things in more digestible, bite-sized, almost visualizations and, and the infographics. Everybody wants that now. People want more interactive educational communication as well. So a lot of people want just summary information. And if they want to dig deeper, they want that to be a personal preference, but not something that's thrust on everyone. So in the early days, we would provide really lengthy uh, summaries of a protocol, for example, in non-technical language, but it was still a lot to read. They keep getting shorter and shorter with more of that sort of interactive enhancement, more video, more graphics, that sort of thing. It keeps us on our toes. Let me put it that way. It's almost as if the the AGA heard that we needed a digestible, especially in the gastroenterology space. So we're trying to knock that one out of the park. Uh, We've talked a lot about how to get patients more involved and aware of what's going on. Do you have specific initiatives that are targeted towards physician engagement in things like CISCRIP or how community docs might get involved when academic centers might have a hold on it? We do. And it's a really important area. In fact, one that's often really overlooked A lot of research sponsors uh, look to go directly to the patients or through the investigative site, but they often really fail to engage the community of uh, physicians within a specific disease community who are often the primary facilitator, the most trusted facilitator to engage the patient in the first place. So there's a lot that we try to do there. We've developed a set of guidelines that sponsors and investigative sites can use to make sure that they're partnering with community physicians appropriately or treating physicians appropriately. I can't honestly say that companies follow those guidelines the way we'd like them to, but it's a start. It gets them started. And then we have a lot of materials that we've developed, both written or and in print and digital, as well as programs where we try to recruit physicians and other health professionals in the community to participate. So we have our Aware for All programs, which have been done in over 70 cities in the U.S. 
where we often have physicians come and participate for the day in educational programs and interacting with patients in the research community. We certainly have a lot of nurses who participate in those programs as well. We have that RV unit, the mobile RV unit, and we are getting, uh, we're creating a small army of people wherever we go to, to man the exhibit booths and that sort of thing when we come. A lot of physicians will hand out materials or hang up posters that talk about the importance of diversity in clinical research and in general, the reason why we conduct clinical trials and they can put those in their waiting rooms or hand them out when they, when they speak with patients. There are lots of ways that we try to engage the practicing uh, our clinical care community and in, in supporting general research education. Along that line, in terms of increasing diversity in clinical trial participation, what do you find is the most important barrier to overcome and how can we solve that problem? I know that's an elephant in the room, but perhaps some niblets would be really helpful. It's an elephant in the room in part, as I know you are really suggesting, it's such a complex topic. It, there are so many things that we need to improve to increase uh, uh, diversity and representation in our trials. Everything from the design of the protocol uh, and uh, just given the burden of participation today to the challenges with access, I would summarize the one biggest challenge in one word, but it's a word that's loaded. The word is relevance, right? How do we make clinical research personally relevant to each individual? And it may mean something different to each person, but we all benefit by knowing that a representative community of people are participating in clinical trials. And we all benefit when everybody uh, takes ownership for clinical research that helps us learn something about a disease and how and how not to treat it. Often we see a lot of the same communities that get involved in clinical research and it's a pretty insular environment. You see the research community a relatively small community in clinical care. And then patients often just stumble into research if they happen to have recently been diagnosed with an illness that does not have an adequate therapy. But the public doesn't really have any personal connection to clinical research. It's not relevant to us as a society in general. It only becomes relevant in that tiny window. There's this really fascinating study that we did. We went out, uh, this was now about 10 years ago, but I, I think you'll like where this is going. We asked patients if they could name, and, and the public, people who'd never participated in a trial, to name a single living scientist who they thought might be involved in clinical research. And about two thirds of people couldn't name a single person. And a third of them thought they could name someone. The number one person mentioned was Sanjay Gupta, the, the medical correspondent on CNN. And about 10% of people named individuals like Albert Einstein, who are not even living scientists at this point. So it was just so clear to us that the media obviously plays a huge role. Most people are so far removed from any clinical research activity. I think that's a great word that does encapsulate how research can be made relevant or when it's not where you see the real gaps in access. So I think that a takeaway for us would be to recognize how to bring relevance 
to patients, to peers, among others. I, that was a great encompassing word. Thank you for that. What would you say? I'd love to learn more about the research you have currently ongoing. What questions are you looking into now with your research team? I have the great fortune of wearing two hats at the same time. I have a team at the Center for the Study of Drug Development, and we're all academics really studying drug development strategies and practices and whether they impact drug development performance and efficiency. And there's just so much to look at now. The use of virtual and remote technologies, what impact is that having? It's not all necessarily benefiting research. It adds additional complexity. There are remarkable difficulties that we have in integrating and making sure that data can be aggregated coming from multiple sources. Um, We're looking a lot at artificial intelligence and machine learning and how that can help automate and maybe minimize the amount of time and effort and investment that goes into working through such high volume of data in order to identify patients or look for patterns in the data that might identify a safety signal, for example, or where we might find a particular patient population that's responding well to a therapy. So AI is another area that we're looking at. There's a lot of interest in the convergence of clinical care and clinical research. And how can these two worlds that have typically been completely distinct, that have such minimal interaction How could you create an environment where research ultimately becomes subsumed and integrated into the clinical care continuum? And how does that work? How can we essentially make clinical research part of every person's health journey in some way and really enable healthcare professionals to be the most integral part? of that relationship with the patients, given the trust and the role that physicians and other healthcare professionals play in assisting patients as they move through that health journey. We do a lot of research in that area as well. And then there's the usual cast of characters, Erin. I'm always doing updates on protocol design practices and how that impacts the speed and success of clinical trials. And that's just at the Tufts Center. At uh, CISGRIP, we have a research team that routinely goes out and conducts studies with communities of patients to understand what can be done better. So we do a large global study where we look at patient attitudes and perceptions about their experience in clinical trials. And that's a study we update every couple of years. We're doing work now on the burden of participation where does the greatest burden lie for patients? Uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with travel, right? And uh, finding a daycare. And there are just so many burdens we don't really think about when uh, the protocol is designed, but that a patient and their family has to figure out. We're doing a lot of that work as well. You know, you bring up so many things and I wish this conversation could go on for an hour and a half. But as you mentioned, we're a little bit of an abbreviated culture, but To touch on a couple of those things, in gastroenterology specifically, if we're doing drug trials and you're asking a patient to do a colonoscopy, there's hotel rooms, there's travel, you mentioned daycare. And I think that drug companies have become a little more aware of those burdens. It comes down to time and money. I think it's great that there are um, organizations like yours that really bring the patient voice to the forefront. 
You mentioned the study trial design differences and your background, it has placebo. And so I think we've seen a transition from placebo controlled trials. And now we're learning more about head to head trials as an alternative to network meta-analysis. And so I think that we have seen clinical trials change over time and certainly in some ways for the better. A kind of last-ish thought as a challenge to you, to me, and to our listeners, I was a participant in the Scrubs and Heels conference, which was a women in gastroenterology, but kind of expanded not just to gastroenterology. But our homework from that meeting was to figure out a way to sponsor a participant. And so I think what we could take away from today's conversation was how can we sponsor either a patient or a provider to make clinical trials more relevant, whether it's just giving them a tidbit about what might be available or a registry or how to talk to their friends about being less intimidated. I think that's something that we can all do. I love that. And we have found so many analogies to what you're describing. When a patient has a chance to tell their story and others really listen to it, it's amazing how much is absorbed and how much is processed, especially when someone's been through the profound experience of being in a trial themselves, right? Suddenly they become so engaged as part of this community and so many people would like to continue to even educate others. And what you raise though is a critical point, which is that we have a lot of amazing stories that we can tell. There are so many people who can share their experience, but somehow that gap that we need to address the desire on the part of those who are not part of this community to try to engage them and to generate interest on their part so they can hear some of these stories and so that they can make this more personally relevant, I think is one of our biggest challenges. Well, excellent. I think relevance and sponsoring those who aren't yet involved can be our take-home messages. I'd like to say thanks so much to our guest, Ken Getz and all of you for joining us on today's episode. Be sure to check out other episodes in our series on diversity and IBD trials. This program is made possible by support from an educational grant from AbbVie, Amgen, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, Janssen Biotech, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals, and a quality improvement grant from Pfizer, Inc. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.